Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome to another episode of AFT in Action. I'm Jan Hockadell, the president of AFT Connecticut, and I will be your co-host this afternoon for our discussion. And let me start off by saying um, we understand the stress, the trauma, the heartaches this pandemic has caused, and we're fighting very hard to keep our members safe and maintain job security. And keeping up with this in an ever-changing landscape, it's, it's been challenging at times. So for those of you who have followed us in the past, um, we hope you understand our temporary hiatus <laughs> from doing the, t- the podcast, but we're so glad um, to start up again and to do so with two really, really great guests. So in a minute, we will be um, joined by Representative Himes to talk about the national political landscape and what's happening in Congress. But before we do that, um, I would like to introduce my co-host, Sal Luciano. Sal, you have been the executive director for AFSCME Council 4 for a very, very long time. And now you're the president of AFL-CIO here in Connecticut. And this isn't your first time helping me out with the podcast. So thank you for returning and helping with our discussion today. Thanks, Jan. It's a real honor to be here with you and Representative Jim Hines. So Sal, this year has been a crazy year. Um, not only with the pandemic, but then with the national election. Could you just give us your thoughts on how the current political landscape is impacting um, working families in Connecticut? I think the pandemic really shined a light on uh, a few things. And and one is the the crisis itself. I know all the difficulty you had getting um, masks and other PPEs and and still, and it's still a problem. It also uh, was an economic crisis. of, of great proportions. And then, and lastly, I think it showed um, some of the structural racism that exists in this country um, and highlighted the, the need to deal with that. We have 200,000 um, people out of work in Connecticut, almost all of them black, brown, and women. So true. So to add his thoughts, I would like to welcome our honored guest, Representative Jim Himes. Um, He represents Connecticut's fourth district in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he's serving his seventh term. And he serves on the House Financial Services Committee, where he is the chair of the National Security, International Development, and Monetary Public Subcommittee. And that is a mouthful. So welcome, Representative Himes. Thanks, Jen. Great to be with you guys. So before we get into what's happening um, in D.C., um, Representative Hives, can you just share with us what inspired you to seek public service in, in, to start out? I, I understand um, first you were with the Greenwich Housing Authority and then moving on to Congress. Yeah, yeah, great, great question, Jen. Um, you know, I, I I come from a family I think that has always been service oriented. My my father spent his career with uh, with the Ford Foundation doing uh, agricultural development work in, in South America, which is why I happened to be born down there. Um, and uh, my mom actually worked in education in the state of New Jersey. Um, and I, I the, the short answer to your question is, um, I've always been um, uh, awed is probably the right word by the ability of our government at every level, um, but particularly at the federal level to make real progress um, for Americans. And that's not to say that 
everything the federal government does is right. That's that that's definitely not true. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s at the tail end of the civil rights movement uh, when the American middle class was was far stronger than it is today. I, I one of my earliest memories, of course, is the moon landing. That was a federal effort. And I, um, um, uh, you know, think about things like the GI Bill uh, and the assistance that so many Americans. Um, and by the way, we, I'm sure we'll come to this, but so many Americans primarily of white skin color got with things like home ownership. Um, and I'd say to myself, wow, when we get it right, we can really make people's lives better. And so I've always been kind of drawn to the idea of, you know, let me, let me try to help out in that effort of, uh, of making Americans lives uh, uh, better. And one of the biggest tools we have to do that usually not necessarily lately um, is of course the, uh, the, the scope and reach of the federal government. So having, um, wanted to be in this position, I bet you never thought, and I know in my life, I never thought we'd see a day like January 6th where there was an insurrection. And, and you know, luckily, I mean, your life was threatened. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it's a day um, uh, I, will, I will never forget. Um, and, and not because, yeah, there was a moment there, you know, when we were being taken out of the chamber by, by very nervous officers and it wasn't clear kind of which was the right way out. And of course I was in the chamber. So I heard the gunshot, which so tragically killed that uh, the, the woman from California. I mean, that is not an everyday occurrence and it's especially not an everyday occurrence uh, in what is the heart of our democracy. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of personal fear there. I, I must tell you, Sal, uh, you know, seeing the video afterwards of what was happening outside, you know, we obviously couldn't see that stuff of, of Americans um, beating up and ultimately killing a police officer, um, of, of Americans calling for the death of, of, of not just Democrats, not just Nancy Pelosi, but calling for the hanging of Mike Pence. I mean, the more I think about it in retrospect, I'm almost even more appalled by it, knowing what I know now of the full magnitude of what happened, because you just look quite apart from the risk I felt that day. And yeah, there was an hour there where I was pretty darn nervous. Um, I just sort of look at the country and say, how do we get to a place where, you know, hundreds and thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of Americans think that the right thing for them to do is to go to the global symbol of self-government, of democracy, the capital, with the intent to break in violently and to kill people. I mean, I just never imagined we'd see the country that in that place. And that there's a lot to unpack there, right? There's the fact that all of those people, and to this day, if polls are to be believed, 60% of Republicans in particular believe that the election was stolen, um, even though there's not a single piece of evidence that suggests that that is, uh, that that is true. Um, the, the country's been warped. Um, and though we all, members at least, uh, sadly there were five or six fatalities that day, uh, you know, though there were no deaths amongst members of Congress and senators, um, the country remains distorted and warped by, uh, by misinformation, by lies, by anger and toxicity. Just unbelievable. And also in January, I know that um, we saw another change, which was uh, the senators, uh, we finally flipped slightly so that I know that when you passed the HEROES Act, which gave hazard pay and money to cities and, and states and, and uh, much more money for workers, Mitch McConnell wouldn't even look at that. And so I know in January, there's another, been another change where the Senate, not by much, it's 5150, uh, but um, what, what are your hopes um, with that in, in terms of maybe the PRO Act, which you also um, have, have sponsored and, and voted yes for? 
Yeah, so, so, so two things to say about that, Sal. Number one, um, we can't make the mistake that the country made back in 09. You know, I started my career in a similar economic moment. Thank God, and not in a similar uh, uh, healthcare moment, but a similar economic moment. You know, 09, because of the financial meltdown, you know, we had unemployment of like 10%, not, not, not terribly different from what we have today. And we, and we, uh, our, our solution was inadequate. You know, we passed a, a $787 billion stimulus and it did some good things and put a few people back to work, but we spent years trying to recover the jobs that we lost in 08. And we just can't make that mistake again, which is why we're going big this time. Um, and we're going big, not just on, you know, making sure that every American gets vaccinated. That's a whole other topic of conversation, but we're going big on something that you alluded to, um, which is helping our states and our towns and our cities. And one of the challenges I, I've, I have faced, and so many of us have faced, and you two will particularly appreciate this, is that if you're Mitch McConnell, you can say, oh, you know, bailing out states and, and, and cities and towns, that's a blue state bailout. That's, that's what they said. What I've tried to do, and what you know to be true, is that when we're talking about aid to states and cities, we're talking about the livelihoods of the people that are employed by those cities, police officers, firefighters, our public health people who have been putting their lives at risk, uh, our teachers who are being asked to put their lives at risk. That When we say state and local, that's what we're talking about. And so we're all out there saying, oh, we love our police officers, we love our firefighters, we love our teachers, we love our nurses. Um, oh, but maybe we can't give you any money. You know, I mean, even though we've deemed you to be essentials, the other thing, Point number two, um, you know, in virtue of having uh, control of the Congress and, and, and the presidency, we're, we're, we're going to reverse um, as many of the anti-labor, anti-middle class um, initiatives that typically get moved by Republican presidents, right? And they make no bones about it. They want to break the unions. Um, they, 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 they don't want to raise the minimum wage. Um, this all the while, while they're saying, oh, well, no, now we're the party as Republicans of working people. And it just isn't true. Compare, here's something that's going to be real interesting. The tax cut that Trump passed uh, with Republican support cost a lot of money cost roughly the same amount of money as the uh, aid bill that we're gonna pass in two weeks. Let's just say two trillion, more or less, about the same amount of money. The tax cut bill sent 80, 85% of its benefit to the top 1% and to corporations through tax cuts. This 1.9 trillion that we're doing, this is gonna be about teachers, it's gonna be about the unemployed, and, and, and we will demonstrate who is standing up for America's working families and who is standing up for the investor class and the very wealthiest in this country. I think you touched on a little bit, but could you talk about the efforts regarding the workforce development, like what you're doing there and what some of the plans are? One of the things that has warped our, our country um, is just the change in the nature of work uh, in the last two generations, right? So my grandparents' generation, um, you know, you got, maybe you got a high school degree, maybe you didn't, but you went down the street to the local plant and maybe that was a, you know, a, an appliance plant, or maybe it was some kind of mill and you got a good job. And you know what? It, it was probably a union job. Um, and you got a good job. And even though you didn't go to some fancy four-year college, you had a good job, you had healthcare, you had bargaining rights. You knew that your workplace was going to be safe and getting safer. Um, and that world is gone. That world is, is largely gone. Even the manufacturing world today, if you go visit any of the manufacturers, you go to Sikorsky or you go up to uh, Housatonic Advanced Manufacturing School like I did, I got to tell you, an industrial lathe today looks more complicated than this computer that I've got in front of me, right? And so what that means is 
you 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 just you don't get that job, which is a good middle class job, unless you're trained in things like software um, and and all of the remarkably complicated things you got to know today to have that same job that your grandfather did. So what's what makes that happen? What makes that happen is training, uh, and it's training in our schools. Thank you, Jen, for the teachers who participate in that. Uh, it's training. Thank you, Sal, by labor that sets up apprenticeship programs. Uh, but of course, it's got to be bigger than that, right? It's got to be the private sector training their people. Um, and the more we make sure, because remember, here in the state of Connecticut, we got jobs that go begging. We got people who are unemployed and we got jobs that can't be filled. What's the bridge? The bridge between those two things, of course, is, is, is training. That really flows right into the next question, which is um, you're a proponent of the PRO Act. And, you know, you were just talking about um, being able to get a good union paying job um, maybe 30 years ago. Can, can you talk a little bit about that legislation? Yeah, sure. So the PRO Act, which, um, as, as I think you know, passed the House um, by a meaningful margin in the last Congress, 224 to, to 194, um, is, a, is a series of measures that are designed to, to put labor on a le level playing field. In other words, it would, it, there's a whole lot in the PRO Act, but um, uh, it dismantles many of the structural impediments um, that various administrations have put in the way of organizing, um, you know, by doing things like prohibiting uh, certain behaviors on the part of employers that are anti-union, uh, um, it would promote organizing, um, it would uh, create additional penalties for companies that violate labor laws, which which happen all the time, um, in an effort to stop uh, 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 workers from uh, from organizing and, and collectively bargaining. And then, and this is kind of the interesting um, piece of it. Uh, in which there's a lot of conversation to be had. Um, another thing that didn't exist in my grandparents' time, of course, was the gig economy, right? Um, and I think we can all agree that the gig economy is a good thing in the sense that, you know, if you're a person, young person, you got 10 hours on your hands and you want to make a little income, you know, you can go drive an Uber. And so, you know, that didn't exist two generations ago. And that's a good thing. So long as that Uber driver isn't being exploited. And so long as, and, and of course the gig economy goes well beyond Uber drivers to all sorts of, you know, task rabbit, that's all good stuff, but it's not good stuff if it is in place of a good well-paying job or um, if it's exploitative. And if you're, I don't mean to pick on Uber, but you know, if you're a major national employer of task rabbit or Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, and you're taking no responsibility for the welfare of the people who make your service work, because you say they're not employees, they're independent contractors. That's not a fair system. So our country has a real conversation to be had about making sure that this good thing, which is the gig economy, doesn't get turned into an exploitative thing. Uh, you are so right on this. <laughs> and you know, we've all been following the work um, President Biden has been doing through executive orders. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of them and how they're gonna be impacting working families here? Yeah, sure. So probably the um, probably the best known one as it relates to to workers is um, uh, uh, the Buy America executive order. Um, and the idea there, it gets a little technical pretty quickly. But, you know, uh, the federal government, particularly the Defense Department, of course, is um, which which spends a lot of money. The federal government is the single biggest consumer uh, in the uh, in the country. 
Um, the idea is that if, if you're going to spend taxpayer dollars as those entities do, you got to spend it on American companies if you can, if you can. Problem is there's all kinds of loopholes and ways out, right? So, uh, you know, uh, 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 something can be deemed to be American if it has a tiny amount of actually American uh, work and components because there's a whole bunch of loopholes. Um, and so it tightens up a lot of that stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because I wouldn't tell you that uh, the government should, you know, pay a factor of four for something, but if it's close, you know, we ought to, the follow on effects of buying American to our communities out there in terms of workers who get paid in terms of businesses that grow, they have a profound effect through the economy, right? A healthy worker that has a government contract is a worker who's eaten in restaurants, you know, who's maybe buying that car a year earlier than they might have otherwise. And so um, that's the idea behind the buy America uh, provision. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, more generally out of Joe Biden, and you're seeing this in stuff that doesn't get followed quite as closely as things like executive orders, you know, the people that get put on the National Labor Relations Board, this is a seesaw, you know, every, every, every time we have a Republican administration, you know, uh, the NLRB gets stacked with people who are real interested in dismantling <laughs> labor protection. So oh, you're yeah. going to see Joe Biden, uh, you know, reverse that. Um, and have an NLRB and a Department of Labor that is actually about standing up for working people. Is there additional House uh, Democratic legislative priorities impacting working families that you want to talk about? Yeah, I, I, I think so, Sal. And there's um, the, probably the big one. Um, the big one is what I hope will come behind the COVID package. Uh, so let's, let's, let's hope that the COVID package gets done in early March. Um, it's important that it does because unemployment insurance runs out for a whole bunch of people in the middle of March. So let's imagine that gets done in the first week of March. Um, I hope that right behind that, of course, is a major infrastructure package, right? And I've been, you know, if you live in, in Connecticut, like, like I think we all do, uh, you know how important that is to our bridges, to our, to our uh, railways, you name it. We've also learned, and Sal, you got it exactly right, you know, COVID really highlighted some disparities including the fact that um, the kind of infrastructure that we're using to talk to each other right now, broadband, um, we got a huge investment to make there uh, for reasons of equity and for smart economic reasons. And I, you know, Jan, I went to a school in Stanford and one of the biggest challenges the teachers faced was that this was a school, of course, that was serving immigrant communities, lower income communities. The challenge on top of the normal challenges of teaching was that an awful lot of families didn't have reliable, um, either the equipment to learn remotely, like we're using to talk to each other right now, or the bandwidth, um, you know, the, the, the actual money to pay, you know, whatever you pay, 75, $90, $100 a month for, for broadband. Um, and so we, it's a real win-win if we can move an infrastructure package because it'll upgrade our, 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 our you know, transportation infrastructure. It'll make sure that everybody has access um, to the internet and to the technology that we're using right now. And of course, in the process of spending that money, you put a lot of people to work. Representative Hines, thank you so much for joining us as a guest, um, giving us insightful information and viewpoints and, and answering, I know, questions that our members um, have been asking. And I hope you'll consider coming back and following up um, with us as things progress in DC. That sounds great. Thank you, Jan. And hopefully next time it's in person. Yes, definitely. Thank you. And Sal, I want to thank you again for being part of our, our podcast. You're, you're the permanent figure now. Um, and it's so great working with you um, on this and so many other challenges that we're working together with in labor. Thanks. It's always uh, fun and an honor and educational to do these things. And I, I think it was really great that we were able to do that with a real champion of workers, Representative Jim Hines. 
Oh, absolutely. And finally, I have to thank my members of our unions for listening um, to this latest episode of AFT in Action. Um, and as always, I hope um, they come away with from the conversation informed and engaged. And we're going to start looking for um, more episodes to come. And we really hope that members will consider sharing their thoughts and suggestions um, for the additional episodes. Um, and you can let us know either by email or by calling us. If you're going to email us, it's actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-C-T-N-E-T-R-E-P-L-Y at sign aftct.org. Or like I said, you can call our um, office in Rocky Hill by leaving a message at 860-257-9782. That's 860 and I really look forward to another episode, um, including our members' voices. So thank you all in advance. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too, and help build the power of the UNI in union.